This is John de Falb from John Sandow's Bookshop in Chelsea, London. Our PG Woodhouse readings this week are taken from the mating season. Another nifty tale of disguise and skullduggery featuring Jeeves and Bertie Worcester that ought to concentrate the minds of those who are losing their grip on reality in their isolation. Chapter 1 while I would not go so far, perhaps, as to describe the heart as actually leaden, I must confess that on the eve of starting to do my bit of time at Deverell Hall, I was definitely short on chirpiness. I shrank from the prospect of being decanted into a household on chummy terms with a thug like my Aunt Agatha, weakened as I already was by having had her son Thomas one of our most prominent fiends in human shape, on my hands for three days. I mentioned this to Jeeves, and he agreed that the setup could have been juicier. Still, I said, taking a pop, as always, at trying to focus the silver lining, it's flattering, of course. Sir? Being the people's choice, Jeeves, having these birds going around chanting, we want Worcester. Oh, yes, sir, precisely, most gratifying. But half a jiffy. I'm forgetting that you haven't the foggiest idea what all this is about. It so often pans out that way when you begin a story. You whiz off the mark, all pep and ginger, like a mettlesome charger going into its routine, and the next thing you know, the customers are up on their hind legs, yelling for footnotes. Let me get into reverse and put you abreast. My Aunt Agatha the one who chews broken bottles and kills rats with her teeth, arriving suddenly in London from her rural lair with her son Thomas, had instructed me in her authoritative way to put the latter up in my flat for three days while he visited dentists and old vicks and things preparatory to leaving for his school at Bramley-on-Sea, and that done, to proceed to Deverell Hall, King's Deverell, Hans, the residence of some pal of hers, and lend my services to the village concert. Apparently they wanted to stiffen up the programme with a bit of metropolitan talent, and I had been recommended by the vicar's niece. And that, of course, was that. It was no good telling her that I would prefer not to touch young Thos with a ten-foot pole, and that I disliked taking on blind dates. When Aunt Agatha issues her orders, you fill em. But I was conscious, as I have indicated, of an uneasiness as to the shape of things to come, and it didn't make the outlook any brighter to know that a gussy fink-nozzle would be among those present at Deverell Hall. When you get trapped in the den of the secret nine, you want something a lot better than gussy to help you keep the upper lip stiff. I mused a bit. I wish I had more data about these people, Jeeves, I said. I like on these occasions to know what I'm up against. So far, all I've gathered is that I'm to be the guest of a landed proprietor called Harris, or Hacker, or possibly Hassock. Haddock, sir. Haddock, eh? Yes, sir. The gentleman who is to be your host is a Mr. Esmond Haddock. It's odd, but that name seems to strike a chord, as if I'd heard it before somewhere. Mr. Haddock is the son of the owner of a widely advertised patent remedy known as Haddock's Headache Hokies, sir. Possibly the specific is familiar to you. Of course, I know it well. 
not so sensationally good as those pick-me-ups of yours, but nonetheless a sound standby on the morning after. So he's one of those haddocks, is he? Yes, sir. Mr. Edmund Haddock's late father married the late Miss Flora Deverell. Before they were both late, of course. The union was considered something of a mésalliance by the lady's sisters. The Deverells are a very old country family, like so many others in these days, impoverished. I begin to get the scenario. Haddock, though not as posh as he might be on the father's side, foots the weekly bills. Yes, sir. Well, no doubt he can afford to. There's gold and then there are hokies, Jeeves. So I should be disposed to imagine, sir. A point struck me which often does strike me when chewing the fat with this honest fellow, viz, that he seemed to know a hell of a lot about it. I mentioned this, and he explained that it was one of those odd chances that had enabled him to get the inside story. My Uncle Charlie holds the post of butler at the hall, sir. It is from him that I derive my information. I didn't know you had an Uncle Charlie. Charlie Jeeves? No, sir. Charlie Silversmith. I lit a rather pleased cigarette. And things were beginning to clarify. Well, this is a bit of a goose. You'll be able to give me all the salient facts, if salient is the word I want. What sort of a joint is this, Deverell Hall? Nice place. Gravel soil. Spreading views. Yes, sir. Good catering? Yes, sir. And... Touching on the personnel, would there be a Mrs. Haddock? Oh, no, sir. The young gentleman is unmarried. He resides at the hall with his five aunts. Five? Yes, sir. The Mrs. Charlotte, Emmeline, Harriet, and Myrtle Deverell, and Dame Daphne Winkworth, relict of the late P.B. Winkworth, the historian. Dame Daphne's daughter, Miss Gertrude Winkworth, is, I understand, also in residence. On the queue, five aunts I had given at the knees a trifle for the thought of being confronted with such a solid gaggle of aunts, even if those of another, was an unnerving one. Reminding myself that in this life it is not aunts that matter, but the courage which one brings to them, I pulled myself together. I see, I said, no stint of female society, no, sir. I may find Gussie's company a relief. Very possibly, sir. Such as it is. Uh, yes, sir. I wonder, by the way, if you recall this Augustus, on whose activities I have had occasion to touch once or twice before now. Throw the mind back. Goofy to the gills, faced like a fish. Horn-rimmed spectacles, drank orange juice, collected newts, Engaged to England's premier pill, a girl called Madeline Bassett. Ah, got him? Fine. Tell me, Jeeves, I said, how does Gussie come to be mixed up with these bacteria? Surely a bit of an inscrutable mystery that he too should be headed for Deverell Hall. No, sir. It was Mr. Finknottle himself who informed me. You've seen him then? Yes, sir. He called while you were out. How did he seem? Low-spirited, sir. Like me, he shrinks from the prospect of visiting this ghastly shack. Yes, sir. 
He had supposed that Miss Bassett would be accompanying him, but she has altered her arrangements at the last moment and gone to reside at the Larches, Wimbledon Common, with an old school friend who has recently suffered a disappointment in love. It was Miss Bassett's view that she needed cheering up. I was at a loss to comprehend how the society of Madeline Bassett could cheer anyone up, she being from top-knot to shoe-sole, the woman whom God forgot. But I didn't say so. I merely threw out the opinion that this must have made Gussie froth a bit. Yes, sir. He expressed annoyance at the change of plan. Indeed, I gathered from his remarks, for he was kind enough to confide in me, that there has resulted a certain coolness between himself and Miss Bassett. Gosh, I said. And I'll tell you why I goshed. If you remember Gussie Finknottle, you will probably also remember the chain of circumstances which led up, if chains do lead up, to this frightful Bassett getting the impression firmly fixed in her woollen head that Bertram Worcester was pining away for love of her. I won't go into details now, but it was her conviction that if ever she felt like severing relations with Gussie, she had only to send out a hurry call for me and I would come racing round, all ready to buy the license and start ordering the wedding cake. So, knowing my view regarding this Bassett M, you will readily understand why this stuff about coolnesses drew a startled gosh from me. The thought of my peril had never left me and I wasn't going to be really easy in my mind till these two were actually centre-eyeling. Only when the clergyman had definitely pronounced sentence would Bertram start to breathe freely again. Ah, oh, well, I said, hoping for the best. Just a lover's tiff, no doubt. Always happening, these lover's tiffs. Probably by this time a complete reconciliation has been effected, and the laughing love god is sweating away at the old stand once more with knobs on. Ha! I proceeded, as the front doorbell tootled. Someone waits without. If it's young Thos, tell him that I shall expect him to be in readiness, all clean and rosy at 7.45 tonight, to accompany me to the performance of King Lear at the Old Vic. And it's no good him trying to do a sneak. His mother said he had got to go to the Old Vic, and he's jolly well going. I think it is more probable that it is Mr. Purbright, sir. Old Catsbeat? What makes you think that? He also called during your absence, and indicated that he would return later. He was accompanied by his sister, Miss Purbright. Good Lord, really? Corky? I thought she was in Hollywood. I understand that she has returned to England for a vacation, sir. Did you give her tea? Yes, sir. Master Thomas played host. Miss Purbright took the young gentleman off subsequently to see a picture. I wish I hadn't missed her. Haven't seen Corky for ages. Was she all right? Yes, sir. And Catsmeat, how was he? Low-spirited, sir. You're mixing him up with Gussie. It was Gussie, if you recall, who was low-spirited. And Mr. Purbright also. Huh, there seems to be a lot of low-spiritedness kicking about these days. We live in difficult times, sir. True. Well, bang him in. He oozed out, and a few moments later, oozed in again. Mr. Purbright, he announced. He had called his shots correctly. A glance at the young visitor was enough 
to tell me that he was low-spirited.